So, first of all, I, no, first of all, I wanna, I wanna dedicate. You know, all of our hearts are broken, and our feelings are uh, with the three young boys who were kidnapped, and we really don't know now what their fate is, but we really pray very strongly to Hashem, and we ask Hashem that He should help them, their families, the Jewish people. They should be safe, they should be returned home safely, very speedily, and all the people that try to do harm to innocent people, to the Jewish people, should have, you know, their day of judgment, they should be penalized, but we should stay strong, we should trust Hashem, we should pray, we dedicate our study today in their zechus, in their merit, that any good deed that we can do that counts, we are going to ask Hashem to please add it up with all the good deeds, with all the good prayers that Jews all over the world are praying and uniting. And, you know, if there is a silver lining, you know, under such a terrible, terrible event, and again, hopefully it'll end that nobody is going to be hurt and we'll find out that it, everything ended good. So we don't know, but one thing it did do so far, it sort of united uh, a lot of our people who are usually fragmented in different opinion and different voices and different ideas. It's brought some of the Jewish people together. And I think, you know, that's a very, a very powerful thing to bring people together. If the Jewish people can somehow find ways, dialogue and ways to bring people together rather than to try to separate and find uh, differences and try to create different factions and division and divisiveness, if we can sort of uh, be together, we would be so much stronger and we would be ahead and we would be able to accomplish and succeed a lot more now. Fortunately, we're busy a lot of the times fighting ourselves, fighting each other, whether it's the religious with the secular or within the religious communities, one group or the Svardim Ashkenazim, you're saying all the various different things. And it's, it's, it seems very petty, and it is very petty at the end of the day. But, you know, hopefully that this has brought a lot of people together. And uh, there has been a lot of negative feelings amongst the Jewish people towards one another. And, uh, we hope that this sense now of unity, that we're all really one family, and to feel that, you know, in a family, sometimes there is a disagreement. You know, uh, families disagree, they fight, and it happens all the time, but yet they still know that they're family, they remain, they remain strong together. So let's hope that, A, they will be safe and sound and return home, very speedily. So by the time we finish this class and we go and see the news, we'll see yeah, that they were well, they were returned. And and therefore, you know, what we what we can do is add to the mitzvahs, add to our study, and really trust in Hashem. Why this is happening to these boys? Now, one thing I don't want to make this into a political class, but I think it's obvious that the enemy 
even though they're using some pretexts of, uh, uh, some say, you know, if we can only compromise with them, if we can only give them what they want, you know, these people that are living sort of outside of the green line, so to speak, in Yehuda and Shamron, Judah and Samaria, uh, they're actually, in a sense, creating a buffer and are protecting the rest of the land of Israel because those same kidnappers would be going over the green line. They don't want to compromise. They want the last Jew in the water. That's what they want. You know, we would only solve the problem if we somehow uh, cease to exist. It's like blaming the victim. You know, there is anti-Semitism because there is Jews. If there were no Jews, there would be no anti-Semitism. They had so many, so many opportunities to be able to compromise, to work out, to have a, a way of making work. But they don't want no uh, compromise. And if one fraction says we want, the other faction says no. And we need no evidence more than look what's going on in Syria next door, what's going on in Iraq, what's going on. All these people are butchering each other. They're savages. They're just... They're beasts. They're not. They're not. It's like in a jungle. You know. It's like you. You. You look in a jungle where the stronger animal gets the opportunity, kills the other one, and just it, that's the way. That's the way they're living their their lives over there, and it's very very scary that we, a democracy, a, a Western, uh, an advanced country with all the advances, we're living amongst these. We're living amongst these beasts. We're living amongst these subhumans because they they don't they don't value life. They don't treat people with with any dignity, with any respect. Life doesn't mean anything, and so we find ourselves right in smack in the middle. We live in the Middle East. We're right there. I mean, the other ones who are telling us what to do, like America wants us, we should rely. They're going to protect us, as we see how they're protecting. Everything invested in Iraq is going down, and that's it. It's getting lost. So we can't rely. We can rely only on HaKadosh Baruch and Hashem. And Hashem wants us to do in the natural way. So we have to defend ourselves and be strong and not give away anything. And we can't because, as you know, the, they've said it, there is no partner to peace. You can't make peace with yourself. You know, you need to have a partner for peace, and you can't do it. So these young boys that were kidnapped, it's nothing to do with the fact that we're building in, in the territories. It has nothing to do. If it wasn't in the territories, the next thing here, the best proof is we gave them, the, the guys over there, the rest of the, the Jews evacuated. And they're just using those places to shoot the missiles from there. That's what they're using it. So there is really nothing, the goodwill, the gesture, trying. And I have to think, their minds think differently than ours. They just have a different, they see things differently. You know, so what we th- think it's logical to compromise, what we think it's logical to make some sort of a uh, reconciliation, they, they don't see that. They look at it, they have different minds, it's different. You know? So having said that, I'm just saying it, our heart goes out to those parents, goes out to those I children. I just watched a video of one of the mothers. She just said, you watched it? it was yeah, it was on, uh, on Facebook. She just says, no, she has unbelievable strength. Right. She speaks in English. 
and she says, I feel the waves and waves of love and prayers and that people are sending us. And she says to everybody, the, I have full trust in the Israeli government and army that they will do. She says, but everybody else, you pray. She says, we'll trust the Israeli army that they'll do but everybody else just we trust pray Hashem. And pray and pray Hashem will send the blessing through the through the army. Yeah. Israel is this, if Israel wasn't there, say the, the Jews decide to settle somewhere else years and years ago, that whole area would be. You can feel that the Jews are the are the anchor, the, the anchor, the stabilizing, the stabilizing the people. Jesse was in the army, and he said they brought humanitarian things to all those to the Syrian border. They bring. Uh, medicines to those areas. Abu Mazan, the head of the Palestinians, his wife is in the Israeli right, exactly. in the Israeli hospital. If it wasn't there, they'd all be dead. Okay, but I, I'm I'm worried if I make this into a political uh, class, I'm going to end up having no class at all eventually, or maybe I'll I'll, no, I'll get get it. Uh, yeah. Really so okay, so having said that, I just want to learn a little bit of a message. And we'll see if we can apply it actually to the current situation. You know, both of these week's portions of today's portion, which we read in Korach, and last week's portion of Shalach, talk about negative, negative things that took place. And there is almost a very, very strong message over there, in on the very simple level, that we must make sure not to make those same mistakes, that we must make sure uh, to learn and see what happened and how they were wrong. And the reason we study it is very simply so that we don't repeat and we don't make the same mistakes. So last week we learned about the Jews sending the scouters, the spies, the Meraglim to go scout out the land of Israel and they came back with a report that we can't do it. Now, it's true, Moshe sent them to go scout the land. So, what did they do wrong? But Moshe didn't send them with a question mark, can we go and conquer the land? Moshe Rabbeinu sent them to find out what is the easiest way, the most sensible way, the practical, the natural way, what way should we go to conquer the land of Israel? He didn't ask them to make a decision whether we are going to conquer it. Hashem said, You're, I'm going to take you into the land of Israel. Hashem promised them. That wasn't up to debate. That wasn't a question. That wasn't something that needed to be verified. They were supposed to trust Hashem. The mistake was that they went and made their own conclusion, not listening to Moshe Rabbeinu. And they scared everybody and they frightened everybody so that all the Jewish people say, we don't want to go to Israel anymore. And that was a terrible, terrible thing. So the lesson is, is very, very simple. A, we must trust Hashem. That's number one. If Hashem tells us we must trust Hashem that He will come through, that's number one. And number two, we should know how important it is to go into the land of Israel, that this is part of the Jewish destiny, that we are not to be remaining in the desert. And as we spoke about last week, 
in the desert, which was a very seemingly spiritual good place because one did not need to get involved in anything besides spirituality because there was no need for people to go to work because normally we go to work because we need to earn money with the money what we do is we buy ourselves food and clothes and other things that we need but in the midbar everything was provided for them everything was just handed to them it was everything a handout was free. it was free so there was no need so what did people do so they can concentrate on the study of Torah, on connecting to God, it was a good spiritual life. But Hashem says, no. We can't stay in the desert forever. We need to go into the land of Israel because the world is meant to work in a way that we do plow the land, we work the land, we work hard, and we take all of this world and we transfer them into vehicles into a way and make them Hashem's place to live into this world so that's the pretty much the lesson of Shalach and then we come to Korach in Korach we find there was this man, Korach, who was a, a very powerful and a very influential figure. And guess what? I really understand this story very well because I see this all the time happening today. See, with all the advancements that we have in technology, in science, and... We have the internet, and we fly planes, and we fly missiles. Today we're flying these drones, these pilotless, and we're doing all these things. But guess what? Human nature remained the same. Human nature didn't advance. We are still as petty and as small, and with our little egos, just as it was in the times of the Chumash. And the story of Korach being a very powerful, he was wealthy. The Talmud tells us, if you remember the story, that Joseph, he was the only one that had food while there was a famine in the whole land. So everybody brought all their money to Joseph. He hid that money. One third of that treasure was found by Korach. So he was very, very rich. He was also a scholar. And he was also a very religious man. So he had basically uh, a lot of power and a lot of influence. And then his ego was bruised. That's what happened. His ego was bruised. How was his ego bruised? Because he felt that some of the appointments that were handed out by Moshe Rabbeinu sort of went over his head. He wasn't chosen and somebody else was chosen. And because he became angry, and because he became jealous, and because he was hurt, he decided that he's going to therefore challenge, and he's going to throw down the whole Moshe Rabbeinu with the Torah, with Hashem, just because he was angry, he was upset. Now, 
as we know, as we see later on the Parsha, Moshe Rabbeinu, as the Torah says, was the most humblest of all men. Moshe Rabbeinu didn't do anything on his own. Whatever he did was clearly by the direction of God. And Moshe Rabbeinu refused in the beginning and all along to even take this job. He didn't want the job. He was trying to get out of it. Hashem was nudging him nonstop and forced him, twisted his arm real hard for so long until he had no choice. It said that God got angry with him before Moshe Rabbeinu agreed for the job. Moshe wasn't looking for it. You see, today's leaders is a whole different story. Today they call it you run for office. You know, you don't even walk for office. <laughs> <laughs> so you're actually running. Because what are you running for? You know, everybody's trying to tell you, I want to be your leader. And they're trying to tell you how good they're going to be for you. You know, that's until they get elected. But, you know, and then once they get elected, you know, that's it. You know, we know what it says in the ethics of our father. Be careful with the government, because they're only nice to you when they need you. But when you need them, forget it. You know, you can wait. So, Moshe Rabbeinu was stuck in the middle. He was forced to take this job. Hashem told him these appointments. And then Korach got angry. And he used his influence and his persuasion powers and all of his strength to build up this massive uprising against Moshe Rabbeinu. And who were the people that went on Moshe Rabbeinu? These weren't the schleppers. These weren't the... Uh, these were the most influential people. It says he had 250 head of the Sanhedrin. These were the high court, the leaders. He got them all to take his side. And he went around and he instigated. He did the usually routine. You know what it is? You get on the phone call and you start selling. He said, look, it's not me that I'm caring about. I care about you. You think, you think I'm looking for my honor? He said, I'm trying to protect you. Look at this guy. And I'm quoting Rashi now. Rashi says, he says, he makes himself the king. He makes his brother the Kohen Godel, the high priest. It's nepotism. It's all in the family. They're doing it all. They're taking care of their own. They're sitting there by the shizzle, by the pot, and each one is taking for themselves. And they're leaving us all out of it. He says, are you going to stand by? Don't stand by. And he was able to get the people riled up. They got all... And they're starting this fight against Moshe. And, you know, of course, the uh, end of the story, as we know, Moshe Rabbeinu, in his humility, still tried everything possible. He tried. Moshe Rabbeinu tried very hard. He tried to somehow find some way to compromise. So even though Moshe Rabbeinu by all accounts and standards, he could have, he had a right to get angry. What are you guys doing? You're standing up. Still, he put his honor on the side and he was looking for ways. He's asking them. He's, he's, he's pleading with them. He's saying, come, do, let's try. Can we figure something out? Let's see what can be done. But they refused. There was nobody to talk to. There was nobody they didn't want to go along. And of course, Hashem later on makes this great miracle in which the Earth opens up, all the people of Korach and Dos and Laviram, they are swallowed in the ground. That was one miracle, and then later on, Hashem again proves it, they each one staff, they put the staff, the staff of Aaron 
blossoms. Everybody sees that Aaron is the chosen one. Hashem wants him to be. And that's the simple story of the portion. Of the portion of the Torah. Now, this doesn't need that much explanation what the message over here is. The message is quite clear. The message is quite clear. A, you must have respect for Moshe Rabbeinu. Which, by the way, we just learned an interesting thing in, in the Talmud that we're studying now. We learned an interesting thing over there. It says that th- this was actually when Shmuel was at the end of his life in, 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 in the prophet Shmuel. And he was sort of giving his last discussion with the Jewish people before passing on. And he was a little bit upset that they asked to make a king. The Jewish people didn't have a king till that time. And the Jewish people asked that they want a king, just like all the nations. And they got King Shaul. Shaul became the king. And uh, Shmuel was sort of a little bit upset with him. He was saying, uh, I'm not good enough for you. I could help you in your wars. I can do. And he tried to show them that he can make rain in the middle of the summer. He was showing them miracles that he can do. He can help them. He was trying to tell them that they didn't need a king. But then he says to them, uh, look, he goes through a little bit of the history, and he tells them about Moshe, Aaron, and himself, and the other three great leaders that the Jewish people had. The other three leaders was Shimshon, was Samson, the, 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 the Giber, Shimshon Giber. And uh, and Gidoim, and the three, uh, the three, these other, those other three, those other three leaders were actually not such great, uh, distinguished, you know, people like Moshe and Aaron and Shmuel, but yet. Our sages tell us, you must accept and follow the leader that is appointed. And he is the one that has been uh, placed upon the Jewish people. We must respect them in that in that time, even though they don't meet up. Because some people will say, oh, that's not, you know, he's not, this leader is doesn't meet up to my, match up to my, standard, because he's not as big as Moshe Rabbeinu, or he's not as big as, he's not as great as the other person, and therefore I only listen to the, to Moshe Rabbeinu, I don't listen to anybody who's on the Moshe Rabbeinu the Gemara says no, we count them all together over there to tell you that the three lightest one are equal to the three most greatest ones, the most serious ones but in any event the, 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 the message is very clearly that you have to subjugate yourself. You have to put your ego away. And you have to listen to what Hashem says. That's on the simple level. But for that simple level, you can read the Chumash. I want to give you over a little bit of an insight from the Rebbe on this parsha. It gives you a little bit of a deep, deeper insight into this parsha. And the Rebbe asks, I mean, interesting, he says, why did... Korach choose to make his fight right now after the story of the spies. Why now? What was bugging Korach? So let's see what was what what 
what bruised his ego? What, what is it that caused, what caused him to get upset? Why, why did Korach start this whole rebellion against Moshe Rabbeinu? So we find three things, actually. We find three things that are mentioned. And there could be many more, but, that, but there are three specific things that he, that he, didn't, that he didn't like. Okay? First of all, he was jealous of Moshe Rabbeinu's appointment. He says, why is Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, why is Moshe Rabbeinu the king? Why is Moshe Rabbeinu the leader? He has this endless power. That's one thing he, he didn't like. Number two, he didn't like his, how come Aaron is the Kohen Gadol? How come he said his brother is the Kohen Gadol? It's nothing. But then there was something else that bothered him. What bothered him is like this. These, these were all from the tribe of Levi. Now, Levi had three sons. And he had Gershon, Kahos, and Merari. Those are three sons. Now, Kahos, he had four sons. I'm telling you, okay? He had Amram, Yitzhar, Hebron, and Uziel. He had four sons. This is already grandchildren of Levi. Levi was the son of Jacob. Who had the 12 tribes. Levi was the son. And he had a son, Kohos. And Kohos had four sons, Amram, Yitzhar, Hebron, Uziel. Now, Amram was the father of Moshe, Aaron, and Miriam. Now, Amram was the oldest son of Kohos. Okay? So he was the oldest son. So, Yitzhar was the second one, the second son. Korach was Yitzhar's son. So they were first cousins. So Moshe, Aaron, with, with, with Miriam, with, with Korach, they were first cousins. But Korach was the son of Yitzhar, of the second son, Amram's, Amram's brother. They were first cousins. But then Uziel, which was the fourth brother, the youngest of the brother. He had a son, Elitzophon. Elitzophon was appointed, he was also, this Elitzophon was also a cousin. He was Korach's cousin, and he was Moshe's cousin. He was another brother. Amram, Yitzhar, Haran, Uziel. So Amram had Moshe and Aaron, Yitzhar had Korach, and uh, Yitzhar had, uh, and uh, Uziel had Elitzophon. So they were all cousins. When it came to time to appoint a leader for the tribe of Levi, Moshe appointed Elitzafen. Hashem told him to make Elitzafen the leader. Here, Korah got angry. He says, my father was the second after Amram. How come he passed over me and you went to the youngest of the sons? You went to Now he got angry. So these are the three things that are mentioned specifically that he got angry. But all these three things without burdening you without burdening you to show you, to prove you the details, but all these things took place several months before the story of the Miraglim, before the story of the spies. So Korach could have gotten angry. Korach was bothered by all this already a long time ago, it must be. It didn't happen now. Because the Miraglim story, which preceded the Korach story, which is also a debate, but that's the way we assume that the Meraglim story, which we read last week, the Shlach, that story of the spies, the story of the scouters, that took place before the story in which Korach went out on the rebellion against Moshe Rabbeinu. And, but Korach's argument, or Korach's uh, bruised ego, took place 
many months before, possibly even a year before. So the question is, why did he wait? What did he, why did, why did Korach wait to start up, to rebel against Moshe Rabbeinu after the story with the spies? What is the connection between the story of the spies to that somehow that gave him the impetus that initiated him to now to wage war against Moshe? What was it? Yeah, what were you saying? Well, does he see that the Jews were complaining, so now they might have them on their side because they started. But the thing is, he saw them all get punished. So he sees that they died with death, they died a horrible death. So why did he wait for now? Actually, if anything, like you're saying, he should have been afraid now because he just saw they were punished and what's going on. And, and uh, you know, the, this wasn't, didn't look like a good time to start up with Moshe Rabbeinu again. So why did he wait somehow? So the Rebbe learns a very interesting and inner looks at this thing in a in a deeper sense. What really was bothering the Miraglim and how Korach picked up on that argument. But I just want to say this. You know, we have two parts in our service of Hashem. One is the study of Torah. We study Torah. And the other one is the observance of the mitzvahs. Mitzvahs that we do are the same mitzvah that everybody does. When we do mitzvahs, when you light the Shabbos candle, say, it doesn't matter. The same candles, the same light, you light the Shabbos candle. When you do the mitzvah of challah, you separate, you take out a piece of challah, it's the same challah, the same dough. Is there a difference in the mitzvah between one person and another person, the way one woman does it and the way another woman does it? Is the lighting of the chen? The act is a very physical act. It's just the act itself, which is equal to everybody. It doesn't make a difference. All do the same thing. If men put on tefillin, everybody puts on the same tefillin. It doesn't make a difference. If you're Moshe Rabbeinu, who's the greatest leader and you're a 13-year-old becoming bar mitzvah, you put on the same tefillin. You make the same bracha. You don't do anything different. When we sit in the sukkah, we all sit in the same sukkah. We shake the same lulav. It doesn't make a difference. But on the other hand, when we study Torah, over there it makes a difference. If you're a person who was granted a good mind, if God gave you a gift that you have a good understanding, then you will be able to study and understand a lot. If you don't have such a good mind, you didn't have the opportunity to study, so you still learn. There's differences over there. Also, prayer, for example. When you pray, okay, you can say the words, the words are all equal, but how much emotional power you invest in your prayers, how much feeling or how much understanding you have in the words that you're saying and there could be differences some people have more some people just say the words other people get really into it so that they are really praying on a different level so you see there are some things mitzvahs for example we all do the same it doesn't make a difference but torah it makes a difference by torah it makes a difference so, 
therefore, the argument of the Meraglim, the spies, the scouters, originally, in yes, last week's parashat, they said, or their argument was, we, we don't need to go into the land, we don't want to deal with physicality, we only want to connect with God, we want to study the Torah, we want to pray, we want to do all good things. Go over there, want to have a good Jewish heart. I don't want to do nothing. I don't want to do any mitzvahs. We don't want to go plow the ground, sow the ground, give challah, do anything. We don't want nothing. Just want to have a good heart, want to have a good mind, study the Torah, love God, and that's it. And I want to do nothing. So that was an argument. But Moshe Rabbeinu said, no. God says, we got to go to Israel because we got to do. And he told them, Maisa hu ha'iker. The act is the main, the most important part. Yes, study Torah is good, davening is good, but it does not reach the level of action. Action stands stronger, is more important. Matter of fact, in action you can connect to God in a more deeper way. Even though in a revealed way, it's understanding, it's emotional, feels more good, more closer to God, but your simple act is actually a more of a greater vehicle. It's a greater connection. Mitzvah means tzavsavichibur. It means to connect, to bind together. It binds a Jew to God in such a strong way, which is even more powerful than studying or, or, or prayer. Okay. So Moshe Rabbeinu says to the Jewish people, to, to the Maraglim, he says, you don't want to go, but that's not the ultimate goal. God wants us to do mitzvahs. We're going to Israel, and we're going to do the mitzvahs. We're going to go. Aha. So now, Korach says to himself, okay. Korach knew very well that if you are going to measure the level, who is a greater scholar, Moshe Rabbeinu, or him, of course he knew that Moshe Rabbeinu was a greater scholar. We knew Moshe Rabbeinu talked to God directly. Talking to God directly didn't just mean that he was the first one, but it means in level, he was the greatest level. After Moshe Rabbeinu came Aaron, then they came, there was an order, there was a, pra, there was a, the way the Torah came down. Moshe Kibel Torah Sinai. Moshe Rabbeinu received it, but it went down different levels. So, Korach, would not say to Moshe Rabbeinu, why are you the leader? Why are you greater? Who says, of course he's greater. He's a more learned person than you are. He's a holier person than you are. He's more a greater tzaddik than you are. So that's why he should be the leader. You have any objection that the greater tzaddik should be the leader over the one who is not such a great tzaddik? No, he doesn't have such an objection. Korach understands that. That is it. But you, Moshe Rabbeinu, just came back after the spies. What did you say? You say, it's, we're all equal, you said. It's the doing of the mitzvahs. If it's the doing of the mitzvahs, we all do mitzvahs. We are all holy. Hashem is amongst all of us. When we do a mitzvah, we connect with Hashem just like you connect with the Torah. You're nothing special. What makes you a better Jew than I am? He says, I'm just as good because it's all only in the action. Actions were all equal. So why should you be the leader and we should be the followers? You know? And here comes a very important point. So what does Hashem say? What is the answer to Korach? What is his answer? 
Hashem's answer to Korach, Moshe Rabbeinu answers Korach is, but we have to understand, and Rabbi explained this with a statement, our sages say something very interesting. They say, we find many times the language, the expression, it says, Teshuva Umaisim Tovim. I just want to say to you before I'm going to tell you this, that there's a lot more, I'm just giving you a little point of it, because you can expound on it, but the time constraints, we'll just keep it in a, uh, a, a portion of it. It says, Teshuva Umaisim Tovim. Maisim Tovim means good deeds. Normally, what, what are the good deeds that we're talking about here? Teshuva, repentance, and good deeds. What is another word for good deeds? Mitzvot. Mitzvot are good deeds. Why do we call them, the Alter Rebbe asks, why do we call them, why do we call mitzvot masim tovim? Why do we call them good deeds? Why don't we just say mitzvot? The Alter Rebbe something says something very important. You know, there is two kinds of mitzvot. We were just saying that everybody does the mitzvah the same? He says, yes, on an external level, we all do the mitzvahs the same. But we need to make sure that these mitzvahs that we do should be masim tovim. That the maisa, that the act that we do, needs to be a good act. A good means it should be a shining, a refining act, an act which brings goodness to your environment, to yourself. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that we do mitzvahs differently? The act of the mitzvah is the same. But, there, but whether, your asp, whether your mitzvah accomplishes that it makes it also shine, that what you're doing brings light to the world, that already depends. You can do the mitzvah. Now, mitzvah is going to connect you to God. Yes, there's not a question. But whether your mitzvah, in addition to connecting you to God, is also going to be a beautiful mitzvah, whether it's going to make light in yourself and in the world, that depends. If it's teshuva or maizim tovim, if there is repentance, then your maizim become tovim. And the Rebbe gives a a very simple parable, an example for this. He says, if you have a precious stone, a beautiful precious stone, but the precious stone is lying in the mud and it's all dirtied up. So, when you look at that precious stone, when you try to look at that precious stone, and you say to yourself, is that stone a precious stone? Yeah, it is. It has. It is still a precious stone. But does it accomplish its function? Does it bring beauty? Is it shine? Is it sparkle? No. Not only does it sparkle, it actually, if you put it in front of you, it'll block. You won't be able to see through it. It's dirty. It's shmutzik. It's not clean. It's something which is doesn't bring any shine. Mitzvahs are avonim toivus. Yes, they are jewels. They are precious stones. But it's not enough just to be a precious stone. The idea is you want that precious stone not to be in the mud. You want it to be shining. It should be clear. It should be clean. It should be beautiful. So Moshe Rabbeinu was saying to Korach, he was saying to them, of course, the main thing is taka the ma'isa mitzvahs. The mitzvahs is important. That's the ma'isa mitzvahs. But it doesn't stop there. 
It doesn't stop there. That doesn't mean the maizim need to be also very shining. It's like we're trying to make this world for a dwelling place for Hashem. The essence of Hashem comes down to the world through a mitzvah. Yeah, it's a it is a precious stone. The world becomes the house, whatever we do becomes we're making an abode for Hashem. Yeah, we're doing that. But Hashem wants two things from us. He wants us to make a place for Him to live in, but He also wants to live in a very clean, beautiful, neat, sparkling, beautiful, precious stone house. He doesn't want to be just there. He is there, but everything else, all the revealed parts are uh, dirty. He wants it to also look beautiful. So not only... Is Hashem there? Not only is the jewel there, not only is His presence there, but His presence is there and felt, brings joy, brings happiness, brings gladness, brings goodness. And those things require Moshe Rabbeinu's deeds, Moshe Rabbeinu's deeds, and Aaron Cohen's deeds. Notwithstanding the fact that the act is the main, but that act itself needs to also come along with doing things in the nicest way. With good intentions. And, and that is where, good intentions, that is where, you know, in our lives, we also live lives of, in which we try to connect to Hashem emotionally, we try to connect to Hashem spiritually, to daven, to, to learn, to pray, to do what we can, to do the best we can to connect to Hashem. And we have to realize and remember that it's not only through our study and our prayer that we connect to Hashem, but the actual act of our mitzvahs connect us to Hashem, doing the actual mitzvahs. Not to be satisfied just by feeling good, having a good heart, and, 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 and feeling emotionally involved, but we got to actually do the mitzvah to the extent we can because that causes the real connection. But when we do that connection to the mitzvahs, we cannot just do it coldly and just get it over with just to do the mitzvah. That mitzvah also requires that we have passion, that we have fire, that we have interest, we have excitement, enthusiasm, that the mitzvahs are done with a lot of fervor, with fervor. And you know, when I'm thinking about these boys in Israel, there are places where life is easier, which is more convenient. Places which are safer for the people to live in. And you have some people who are actually going out of their free choice. Unlike the army. Like the army, you have to serve in Israel. It's a law. You must serve in the army. So you have no choice to go to the army or not. Besides the Haredim or getaway, that's another thing. But the those who study Torah, but like this, it's the law of the land. Nobody tells you that you have to go live in the Yehuda and Shamron, that you have to live in the biblical Israel. People choose, many people choose to live in Tel Aviv, in Ramat Gan, or any other place, even in Jerusalem, 
lot of these people that live there never go to visit Hebron. They've never been outside of the Green Line. To them, going to the Hebron is almost like saying going into uh, Mattapan in the middle of the night or something like that. You know, over here to you're 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 endangering yourself. You know, to them, they it's, it's unheard of. So these people that live there are actually doing an action. They're not just preaching about it. They're not just talking about it. They're not just saying we want to be good Jews. But they go and they live there. They put themselves in harm's way on the land of Israel to try to protect and to hold on and to save Jewish lives. That's what they do. So they're not just emotionally connected to Hashem. And at the same time, these poor young men, they were yeshiva students. They were spending their time connecting to Hashem. So they did both of this. They were there with their bodies physically, living in the land of Israel, being over there. They were studying Torah. They were of the highest madriga. And Hashem will certainly look after them and protect them. And we pray for a immediate outcome, for a good, positive outcome. Let's hope that we'll hear it very soon. Uh, everybody should try after the class, if you can. I know that you say a little psalms over here. It's all right, I have to go to Mincha. Put in a coin to charity for tzedakah, especially for zechus, for a merit for these young, young boys. And, you know, right now we're talking about the young boys, but our soldiers, our brothers and sisters in Israel are always can use the encouragement and the strength and the extra mitzvahs that we do. We should keep them in mind. We have to remember that we are one people, we are all together, and Hashem will, amidst Hashem, show us the miracles, protect us, and show us His kindness, and we'll get out of this as we've gotten out from a lot of tzoris, and let's hope that this happens very soon, speedily, Inoimar Omei. The mother, she says, these are yeshiva students. She says, where were they coming from? She says, they were coming from learning Torah. She says, God has to protect them. Well, at the bottom of the settlements, there is the bus come. We were in the Yavid bus. It was lovely. Um, and they sit there. But the Arabs, they come in and they work in the settlements. And they have to come in with the contractors. So they must have been sitting on the outside waiting for bus, and the cars pull up and say, do you want to ride, do you want to ride? Do, do, and they must have gone in with it. Do you want to comment or ask a question on the class, please? Well, I got five minutes. Well, so I have cousins that live in Efrat. So is that considered um, what you would say, that they're putting themselves in harm's way? To a certain extent. There's that varies different degrees. Uh, I don't mean putting in harm's way. They're in the West Bank. Yeah, so I'm saying to a certain degree. Uh, if you ask uh, people that live in more, uh, more central Israel. But, you know, they, go, they come after us no matter what. So if it's not there, they'll go another way. They, they, they just want what they want. I'm not... Uh, I